beginning a new series this morning on the life of David. I'm real excited about it. And really, this is going to be the life of David, part one over the next month, the rise of David. And I hope to do part two later in the year on the fall of David. But there'll be a few things we've got to get through as a church between now and then. But this morning, we begin looking at the rise of David. And our scripture reading is going to be from 1 Samuel chapter 1. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Here we go. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah... He gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me. And not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one besides you, there is no rock like our God." Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints. But the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's God's word this morning. So why David? Well, here's why we're looking at David. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no one person in the Bible with more words and stories written about him than David, meaning this. If we ever hope to understand what the Bible is and what the Bible means, we'd better get a good grasp 
on who David is and what David means. And one of the most fascinating ways to get insight into the person and character of David is to look at the kind of person that David interacts with. In other words, we see David most clearly by looking at him through the lens of the people in his life. So over the next month or so, that's what we're going to be doing. We'll be looking at the rise of David through the people surrounding him. Sort of getting a double dose of David and then the people next to him. So today we're going to begin looking at the rise of David in the same place that the Bible does. In all places in the life of a woman. A barren woman at that. A woman named Hannah three things about Hannah and how she shows us David more clearly. First, we're going to look at why Hannah storms, two, how Hannah stands, and finally, what Hannah sings. Let's begin, number one, in looking at why Hannah storms. And as we read, Hannah was one of two wives, and when we meet Hannah, we find that Hannah's life in the story, in the text, Hannah's life is falling apart. Why? What's happening? Well, to understand what she's feeling, we need to get a grasp on a particular word back in verse 6. Now, in English, the word gets translated as the word irritate, but that's really not quite strong enough because the word means in the Hebrew to thunder or roar, as in a storm. As a matter of fact, in every other time this word is used in the Old Testament except for one, it refers to a raging storm or a thundering sea or a a storm that's raging on the sea. In other words, Hannah wasn't just irritated. Inside, she's raging. She's storming. She's drowning, can you see, in a sea of emotion the point where now she's beginning to walk away from God. And you see this in verse 7 when she refuses to eat the temple food. That's a way of keeping God at arm's length. See now, Hannah is refusing to worship. She's refusing God's word. She's refusing her faith community. She's giving up on God, her faith, and her church, so to speak. Well, why? Why is she doing this? Why is she like this? Well, there's two reasons, both of which you find back in verse 2, and it tells you this. It says, Penina, Penina, had children, but Hannah had none. First, Hannah was barren, unable to have children. You say, well, that's, you know, that's kind of tough, but is that really worth losing your faith over? Why in the world would that bring a person to the point of despair? Well, in that culture, you see, barrenness was a social death sentence. Why was this? Well, we looked at it a few weeks ago in part in our Galatians series, but let me just go one step further with it this morning. To be barren in an ancient and traditional culture meant your family's prospects for survival were incredibly dimmed. Your potential income, your social status, and really your future personal security were all determined by how many children you had. You had more hands if you had more children to work the fields and protect your land. And if you didn't want to starve to death in old age, you'd have to have three or four children live to adulthood, meaning you had to bear, likely, somewhere around ten children. Therefore, can you see, bearing children was a life or death issue. So much so that there was an enormous amount of pressure on women to bear children in that culture. Matter of fact, if it was, it was if you'll pardon the pun, unbearable pressure. Didn't really mean for it to be funny, but there it was. All right. 
Never know what people are going to laugh at. That's why you come, right? See, women who bore multiple children in that day, they were considered national heroes because they had so many children. And to illustrate the depth of this, think of Rachel's plea to her husband Jacob all the way back in Genesis 30. She says to her husband Jacob, Rachel says, Give me children or I die. Or I die. Walter Brueggemann, a famous Old Testament scholar, said this. He said, Barrenness in any ancient text or narrative is the effective metaphor for hopelessness. For without children, there is no foreseeable future for yourself, your children, or for your people. Barrenness meant there was no human power to invent a future at all. And you today, you and I, will feel like Hannah felt at any point, hear this, at which we are incapable of achieving what our culture defines for us as the way of salvation. And their culture was having children. See, ancient Israel had a collectivist culture whereby all your meaning, all your hope was in your family. How you, how you got ahead was through your family. But today, of course, by contrast, in the U.S., we live in an individualistic culture. We don't rely on our families to give us meaning, do we? No, we rely on ourselves, right? Our own personal attributes to get ahead. I mean, think about it, right? Uh, For those of you who went to college, when you were in college, did you ever think, when you were registering for your classes, is this class I'm going to take going to help my brothers and sisters back home? Is this class I'm taking going to help my family get ahead in the world? No, you thought, man, is this class I'm taking going to help me get a good job, right? That's what you were thinking. Uh, For those of you uh, who have gotten married, did you ask when you were getting married, is this person I'm marrying going to help my family's social status, our our advancement in the world? No, you thought, is this person going to make me look good, right? Going to make me feel good. Why? Because our culture doesn't pressure your family to get ahead as much as it pressures you to get a name for yourself. And so, yes, those cultures were oppressive towards women on a collectivist basis. But our culture isn't really that different today. Oh, it still oppresses women today, but on an individualistic basis. See, the oppression in any culture comes in at the point at which our culture, any culture's offer of salvation differs from the gospel. So what is it in our culture that in many ways defines the way of salvation, of transcendence, of importance for women today in particular? Well, it's not having babies, no, as much as it's having beauty. Having beauty. Looking a certain way. And at an increasing rate, of course, people who are beautiful are are held up literally as the model of perfection and happiness. And so much so that many of you today, especially women, I know this. Women, you go to the grocery store, right? You go to the magazine aisle. You look at your friends, perhaps. You feel like a 21st century Rachel, don't you? Give me beauty or I die. Or at least give me enough, you know, beauty to have a husband, (laughs) or I die. And my wife, Carrie, for many years, she, she struggled with this, struggled with being anorexic. She doesn't mind if I share this. Through her teen and her early adult years, up until when we were first married, she was and is, she's beautiful, she's naturally thin, but she was overly thin because she'd skip breakfast, skip lunch, eat popcorn only for dinner. Didn't help when she got to college to run track at the University of Houston, and she began to feel the weight, excuse me, the pressure to keep her weight down for running track there. Of course, that wasn't healthy to begin with. She would wake up in the middle of the night 
to do workouts, sit-ups, jumping jacks, jog in place, push-ups, and go back to bed. Wake up a couple hours later and do it all over again. All the time, seeing nothing but how fat she was in her own mind. Now, thankfully today, by the grace of God, she's free. She's broken out of that. The power of Jesus has rescued her, and it can rescue you too. But let's just ask, how many women with eating disorders do you read about in the Old Testament? None. Why? Because the pressure wasn't on them to look good, was it? No. The pressure was on this woman, on these women to feel good about themselves because they bred well. You say, God, that's so oppressive. And it is. But is our culture really that different today? No, no. And women then wanted to die because they couldn't have children and therefore meet the standard their culture created. But women today want to die. They'll kill themselves because they aren't meeting a standard of beauty our culture is created. See, there's no such thing as a non-oppressive culture. But the whole point of this story, the whole point of this text, and the whole point of the Bible is that our God, this God, this God in the text is a God of freedom, and he comes to rescue every human heart out of the power of bondage of every culture. Which now brings me to the second reason Hannah was storming on the inside. Second reason she was storming there in verse 2 was this. It was because of her rival, her husband's co-wife, Penina. What was Penina doing? Was she empathizing with Hannah? I mean, I'm sorry, really tough. And it's got to be such enormous pressure on you, Hannah, to have children. And I'm going to pray for you. Uh, I'm going to encourage you. Was she doing this? No. What was she doing? Provoking taunting. Why? Because she was winning the cultural game of her day. She wasn't body shaming Hannah. She was baby shaming. Can you see? Which actually, again, shows us something else going on here beneath the text. If you were to take this story, take this story, in particular, this part of the story, the Hannah Panana thing, to your average Bible class at UT, your average internet message board for all the cool kids hang out you know the most frequent and common reaction to that would to the story would be oh this story this kind of story this is what i hate about the bible right this is why i left the church in the first place can you believe this man i can't believe the bible teaches all this stuff about polygamy and patriarchy to which Dr. Robert Alter, the great Jewish Hebrew scholar, and we'll be hearing more from him in this series, Dr. Robert Alter says this, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. He says, if you'll notice, there's actually no place where the Bible holds up polygamy as being normative or even encouraged. In fact, he says, every single place, polygamy, patriarchy, and primogeniture, that's the favoring of the firstborn son, all the times these are depicted, they are only shown as being destructive of families, of wreaking havoc on women and children and the families. I mean, in modern terms, think of a TV show that depicted problems in a family. And think about that family having the same problem over and over through all ten series, you know. Would you think the writers of this show were trying to get a message across to you? Well, they would be. And therefore, if you really want to know why patriarchy and polygamy are bad ideas, read the Bible. They're undermining, the Bible's undermining those things. And men, secondly, if you've got some stupid fantasy about how great it would be 
to have multiple wives. Just read this story. Read Abraham. Read Jacob and get a reality check. All right. See, polygamy, it's ruining not just Hannah's life, it's ruining Peninnah's as well. She may have been winning the cultural game, but her heart's also twisted. She was winning in a sense. Hannah was failing in a sense. But in the end, both of them were losing. Both of them were losing. And yet, one of them found the way out. Hannah did. Hannah found the way out. Hannah broke free from her storm. Let's see how she did it. Number two, how Hannah stood. We'll build up to what happens to Hannah by picking up the story now in verse 8. And instead of Penina now speaking to Hannah, now it's her husband. What does her husband Elkanah say to her? It's this. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Let's ask. What's happening right here? on a base level. Well, what's happening here is that Hannah is now being offered the choice, hear this, of two false hopes. Two false hopes. What do I mean? I mean this. The first false hope that she has, the one we've seen so far through her interaction with her rival, is the one that's defined her life so far. That's been the hope of having children, what that would mean to her and her culture. She's allowed herself so far to believe the lie that she's defined by her barrenness. And so now her husband, Elkanah, he sees this. He's doing his best. He really is a merciful guy here. He's doing his best to make his wife feel loved. He's got one wife, can you see, who's winning the game, one wife who's losing the game, and he's trying to even the score as best he can. And we read earlier, he gave a double portion of food to Hannah, which is a way of saying twice as much honor he gives to her, twice as much love. But even in his kindness, he's only offering her another false hope. Not the hope of a child, but the hope of himself. The hope of his own person. Hannah, he's saying, isn't my love better than having children? Isn't the meaning that my love can bring to you mean more to you than the meaning of having children? In other words, put me as the center of your life, Hannah. She's got two options before her. A, allow her culture to define her, or B, allow a man to define her. So what does she choose? Oh, this is so beautiful. It's the turning point in the whole story. Hannah chooses C, none of the above. Look at verse 9. It says, then, then, then Hannah stood up. You think, big deal, her legs got cramped. You know, she got up out of her seat. No, literally in the Hebrew, it says this, Hannah arose. Hannah arose. In the Hebrew scriptures, for a person to arise means they're making a dramatic and decisive action. You see it all the way through the Old Testament. Abraham arose. Moses arose. Joshua arose. To arise means to come up through the fog of indecision or hopelessness to a place of action. Hannah arises. She goes not to her culture, no, not to a man, but to the temple. Instead of running from God, Now she runs to God in her pain. And she prays something amazing here. She's got a prayer on her heart to pray. And we're going to look at it in depth. Three things inside her prayer show us how she broke through then and how you can break through today. Verse 10, in bitterness of soul, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much 
and pray to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, Oh, Lord Almighty, if you only look upon your servant's misery, remember me, not forget your servant, but give her a son and I'll give him back to you. No razor will ever be used on his head. Let's look at this. First, her prayer, three things about it. First, her prayer was emotionally real. Emotionally real. And let me tell you something this morning, if you haven't heard. Authentic, life-changing prayer is emotionally real. It's emotionally vulnerable. See, traditional Christian culture, if you're from that background, tells you to maybe stuff down your emotion, to, to bottle it up and not let it out. But the problem with that is, you can see from this story, is it's just not biblical. You only become more tormented, and Hannah was becoming more tormented the more she kept it inside. But on the other hand, our modern secular culture tells us to, to blow steam on everyone around us when we've got a bone to pick with our lives, right? Go on a talk show, maybe jump over a couch, so to speak. Some of you have seen that. You air your grievances. Don't really pray about it. Just post about it because the world owes you an audience, right? It's just you being you after all, right? But that's not what Hannah does here, though previously she had tried both, alternately through controlling her life, not eating, or through weeping to the point where her husband had to intervene. But here in verse 10, it's different. Hannah neither bottles it up nor vents it out on those around her. She does something altogether different. Let's see what it is. We haven't read it yet. Let's do it. Verse 13, it says, As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving. Her voice was not heard. So Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. Here it is. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And here, church, we see the biblical approach to the emotional life. Not stuffing it down, not throwing it up, but pouring it out. Pouring it out before the Lord. Let me ask you, do you pray when you pray? All the gut-wrenching, why is this happening to me? I don't understand it, God, kind of prayers. Emotion, pain, without an overarching purpose and a place to take them will only serve to torment you or hurt others. But if you'll take your hopeless situation, pour out your heart to the Lord, you'll find something happens to you on the inside. And it's interesting here, of course, Eli, he doesn't even get what's happening to her, which I think has less to do with Eli and more to do with the state of worship in their day. He's stunned by someone actually showing emotion, someone actually praying in church, so to speak, which, was, which means he was accustomed only to people doing their religious duty when they came, showing up, going through the motions, bringing in their offering, then going home. But when someone comes in, truly seeking God, truly worshiping, he can't even make out what's happening. And some of your friends, by the way, they may not recognize what's happening to you. When you arise... Like Hannah arises. When you pour out your soul to the Lord, they may be suspicious of you if you begin to emotionally connect with God. Why are you doing that? They may ask. Why are you getting all emotional, worked up about that church thing? You know, why are you, uh, you know, you should be keeping a stiff upper lip. Don't get into all that emotional stuff. Listen, why don't you tell Hannah that? Uh, this emotional stuff changed her life. 
change their life. Or your friends, on the other hand, they may not get it. If you who once used everyone around them, you know, social media, your community group, as your emotional life support, you're actually now praying, praying deeply about what's happening in your soul. First, Hannah's prayer was emotionally real. But second, it was also theologically rich. Let's look at it. Theologically rich. She says this, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember. What name does she use for God here? It's this name, Lord of hosts, or in Hebrew, literally, Yahweh, Sabaoth. This is the Hebrew name for God that emphasizes his utter transcendence, his absolute power. So what's she done? It's beautiful. Hannah has hooked her heart onto one of the attributes of God. Here's what she's saying. She's saying, God, you are so majestic. God, you're so powerful. I am utterly subject to your will, Lord of all the universe. But look on me. Remember me. See, she's presupposing here that her little life and her little problems matter to an infinite God. And this, by the way, is the heart posture of prayer the Bible uses throughout. I mean, look at Abraham back in uh, Genesis 18. He says, oh God, when he prays, oh God, though I am but dust and ashes, may I be so bold as to come before you and ask something staggering of you. And that's what Hannah's doing. She's doing the same. Though I am but dust compared to you, O God, I know I matter to you. See, there's no other God like that. No other God like that. This isn't the kind of God that's so far removed from humanity. He only comes near but to smite the wicked. Nor is this our modern, just goofy picture of God who's just sort of loving without being just, who never holds anyone accountable, who just receives people just as they are. No, this is both. She's saying, God, you are totally holy, absolutely powerful. You've got the right, God, to ask me to live the way you want me to live because you're God and I'm not. But my life matters to you. My prayer matters to you. So I'm going to ask, as long as I'm asking, <laughs> I'm going to ask big. Do you pray like that? Do you pray like that? See, her prayer, first, was emotionally real. Second, theologically rich. And finally, number three, it was personally redemptive. She said, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head What's that mean? It's kind of strange. Well, at first you may think this is sort of like a typical prayer people pray when they're in trouble, like, you know, God, if you'll rescue me, God, if you'll save the drowning man, I'll go back to church. No, which, by the way, isn't really what God wants from you. Okay, hear that. Wants far more. But this is no empty promise she's making because this last part, the razor part, refers to an obscure Jewish vow called the Nazarite vow in which a child who was not the son of a priest and therefore couldn't ascend into the priesthood, wasn't the son of a priest, could come in to and serve in the temple. He would be exclusively dedicated to God. He would drink no alcohol, never have his hair cut. The point was this. This person would stand out wherever they went. Everyone would see them and know what they existed for. Therefore, what Hannah's doing is telling God this. She's telling God this and showing us this. She's saying, God, this child isn't for me. God, this child is for you. 
God, this child is for you. And when she did that, the thing she wanted didn't own her anymore, can you see? And until you can say to your culture, as Hannah did, my life doesn't exist for you, culture. Until you can say my life exists for God, your heart is going to rage. It's going to storm. But when you can say, God, I won't just serve you and love you and be at peace if I get what I want. I'll serve you even more now if I don't get what I want. And you can pray this, God, even if I get what I think I want, it's not about me. See, Hannah's prayer is personally redemptive. To redeem means to get back, to receive back. And Hannah here, by giving up her life, she gets it back. She gets her life back. She's at peace now. And here is what is astonishing about what the Bible promises you. She is at peace not after she gets pregnant, not after she gets what she's prayed for. She's utterly free and at peace before she ever gets anything from God. Look, verse 17, 18. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace. May, the, may God grant your prayer. She said, okay, I'll go in peace and find favor in your sight. So she went her way, look, and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to home. And Elkanah had relations with his wife and the Lord remembered here, remember, remembered her. Can you see what happens? She pours out her soul. Then she has peace. Her peace comes not when she got what she wanted, but before. That's her prayer. And that's how Hannah was able to arise, to stand, and to break through. And how you can as well. Now, let me set up my final point by asking you a final question. Where is David in all of this? right i mean this is a series about david right it's supposed to be about him and if you're asking that now because i reminded you you're actually if you didn't know it you're actually bringing up a far larger and more important question which is this why is any story in the bible at all why is any story there why are any people any marriages why are any children in the bible at all i mean because you'll notice when bible characters have children some of their lives are followed right but most of them aren't it's usually just one why is that you say well gosh that's kind of not fair you know i thought god loved everyone equally what's the deal well here's the deal most of us when we read the Bible, when our culture encounters the Bible, we read it as a random collection of stories that are supposed to teach us how to live better lives and be better people. So we object when we read things about polygamy or patriarchy. But listen, but that's not how the Hebrew people read it, and that's not what the Bible is. The Bible has one overarching plot line and purpose. It's mentioned all the way back in Genesis 3, when man rebels against God. God comes and says, humanity on its own has blown it, can never rescue itself, but one day there'll be a seed a seed that comes from the woman, a child. And this child will deliver humanity from what they can never deliver themselves from, from sin, from war, from oppression, from destruction. See, the entire Bible is about the promised seed of the woman, a coming deliverer. And only stories that are attached to that plot line make it in. 
consistency. Because of the Bible. We're just about the people themselves. Then the people themselves would be the heroes you're supposed to emulate. But if we read the Bible, as we ought to, not as a collection of Aesop's fables and bedtime stories, but one larger interconnected story about God's redemptive purpose in history. Now a purpose, a grid for every story emerges And that purpose is to show how God's larger purpose is coming to pass. How the promised seed is coming to pass. You ask, well, where is that in this story? Fair enough. Right here. It's in what? Number three, in what? Hannah sings. What a song she sings here. We read this in chapter 2 after her son was born to her. And there, there are two things that she's singing about here that show us God's larger purpose. First, she's singing about him. Well, look, first she's singing about a pattern, about a, a kind of a pattern. Look at this. She says, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn, I mean, strength is exalted. My mouth speaks against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Those who were hungry cease to hunger. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Well, what's she saying? She's saying that, hear this, God's salvation has a pattern to it. Who does he save? Who does God save? Not the powerful, right? Not those who imagine themselves as being powerful. They can make it on their own. But those who are weak, and know they are weak. He casts down the proud, she says. But he lifts the weak up. He lifts up who? The small, the barren, the insignificant. This is how this God saves. And this is the kind of a person this God uses. And one day, just a few years later, Israel's greatest king, David, would be born. And he was anointed. Same kind of pattern. Not in the palace but out keeping sheep. Not when he was mature, but as a boy. Not as a soldier, as a shepherd. And who would be the one to anoint that kind of a king? It was Hannah's son, Samuel, who became Israel's greatest and final judge and whose name means hearing the Lord has heard. Hannah, you see, sang this song. This pattern went into her son Samuel's heart. He heard the pattern and one day he would be the one to anoint David, the carrier of the seed. Actually, we'll look at that story in just a few weeks. But Hannah here, she's not just singing about a pattern. She's also singing about a person. Because look at the last two lines from her song. She said, saying, And he will, God will, give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his what? Anointed. You say, well, I get it. You know, she's singing about David, the coming seed. And I would say this. Yes and no. Yes and no. Hannah's seeing something here. She's going way beyond David because she doesn't just use the word king here. She uses the word anointed, which is literally the word Messiah in the Hebrew, in Christ. Excuse me, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the word Christos, the word Christ. In other words, as much as she's singing about David, she's singing about a greater David, the Messiah, the Christ. And you can know this is what she's doing because of another famous song song sung by another famous bible woman who had an even greater son in the new testament this woman's name was mary mary the mother of jesus centuries later in luke chapter one she sings another version of 
God's greatest hit, Hannah's song. When Mary herself conceived, Luke chapter 1, look, it's almost verbatim. She said, my soul exalts the Lord, my spirit rejoiced in God, my Savior. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, sent the rich away empty-handed, given help to Israel, his servant. Mary's singing the same pattern. Why? Oh, because Mary was the ultimate barren woman. She was a virgin, not even married, totally unable to have a child, but brought forth the ultimate and righteous judge, God's anointed one, Jesus. But this anointed one was different than all other children born to all other barren women. Isaac, Samuel, Samson, these were all Old Testament characters born to barren women who saved their nation or their family by some sort of political or economic power. But Jesus was different. He lost all his power and gave it away. He was different. He poured his soul out, not unto life, but unto death. And when Jesus poured out his soul on the cross, he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, but got no answer and died in silence and agony. Why? Oh, so he can now be raised to life and provide us with the way out, not just of a culture, but of hell and death and sin itself. He is the pattern, Jesus is, and he is the person Hannah and Mary sing about. He's the greater Samuel because he hears your prayer. And he's the greater David because he is the great king who brings salvation and freedom to all those who would cry out to him today. See... You want to sing the song of Hannah, have that kind of peace? You have to have the ultimate hope of Hannah, God's anointed, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer. Receive that this morning by faith. Oh God, we come to you this morning in faith, thanking you for this amazing story, for what it shows us. Lord, thank you for your pattern this morning of how you save Lord, it's when we become weak. It's when we give up. It's when we surrender. Then we break free. Lord, I'm praying for those here this morning who need this kind of a breakthrough. Well, they would become weak in a sense and pour out their soul before you. Oh, Lord of hosts, would you look on your servants here this morning and meet them in their place? Feeling alone, abandoned, feeling like no one's there for them. Lord, in a sense, you've got them and us right where you want us, in a place where we can actually get peace. If you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I need peace in my heart. I just don't have it. There's something that's raging, storming on the inside of me. Would you raise your hand today as we come to him, yeah. Lord, I'm praying for these. All the storms your children face. The word is the same to us as it was to Hannah. Peace, be still. Lord, I pray now as these, as they begin to pour out their soul, to become real with you, to see your richness of your character, while they get their lives back, peace would come. Lord, I pray for these to have the courage to find someone, even if it's a foolish priest, 
connect with. Lord, I'm praying for those today. Lord, who feel hopeless. Will they be able to sing your song today as they reach out to you in faith?